Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crawcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by Mr. Brandon Boyle, the host of the Venom Man 20 YouTube channel. Brandon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I do appreciate it. Um, it's our pleasure. So, uh, want to start us off how you first got into um, reptiles and how that led to what you're doing now? Uh, so, yeah, originally, uh, when I was like three years old, I seen a TV show that had the turtle and I became obsessed with this turtle. And uh, I just begged my mom for day in, day out, can I get a pet turtle? And she said, uh, finally, on my fourth birthday, that yes, you can. So we got a turtle for my birthday. And ever since then, I've always had a pet reptile. Uh, by the age of 12, I was out in Arizona looking for rattlesnakes and scorpions and tarantulas or anything I could find. And I just, I've never not owned something. Uh, from there, I've went on to work for serpentariums, for zoos, stuff like that. I've always just been a little obsessed with anything and everything that people tend to get freaked out by. Awesome. What made you start like a YouTube channel? Go and go well, that route. I, I like sharing my reptiles with people. So I was originally like in school, I would always ask the teacher, can I bring in my pet tarantula? I would love to show my tarantula to the class or I'd love to show my turtle to the class. And sometimes they'd let me, you know, uh, so I could reach people that way. A lot of people I could get to touch a turtle or touch a snake for the first time, you know, and they, they developed an interest for it. Uh, and then I started speaking in front of people, like the largest crowd I had was like 200 people in a library, which was really awesome. Uh, and then I uploaded a YouTube video just for fun. I uploaded a couple more just, just to be doing something uh, back in 2009, 2010. And one of them took off. I got like, I want to say 27,000 views. I got to think, I'm like, I mean, that's like Metallica numbers. You're never going to reach 27,000 people in real life. You're never going to have a Coliseum, you know, but on YouTube, I can. And it's not any pressure. It ain't like I got to go up there and really perform. I just do what I want to do. And if they want to watch it, great. I figured I could reach a huge audience without, you know, uh, without really... Uh, having to work at it per se for lack of a better term so um what is it that you currently do other than your youtube channel uh so I, well i mean i do the youtube channel i focus a lot on tiktok right now because the growth is there so i mean i can reach a lot of people which it's surpassed anything that i ever thought was possible um which is pretty awesome the amount of people that i can reach uh i do the instagram facebook but that's not necessarily relevant. I don't, I don't do Facebook much, you know, it's just something on the side. Um, I do a lot of reptile shows, I, you know, present, uh, not necessarily percent, although I have presented at reptile shows, I'll sell handling equipment, stuff like that merch. Um, I'm actually a welder, full-time welder have been most of my life. Uh, so I've built some of the biggest cranes in the world. And right now I'm working on like press assemblies for building houses. Uh, that's the main staple of my income. But at the same time, I, I really like focusing in on venoms. But at the same time, I don't have the biology degree to necessarily to necessarily contribute in the scientific aspect of that. Um, at the same time, I feel like if I can spread awareness for the medical benefits of some of these venoms and some of these venomous snakes and why we need to keep them around, maybe I can reach enough people to help in that side of things. 
That's something that's so neat about the education aspect, which you kind of hit uh, big, is um, people who don't necessarily have the biological background or maybe just don't want to go that route can still um, become someone like you that's, you know, kind of enveloped in the field and, and have their own collection and everything like that. Um, what got you interested in, in doing venomous snakes? Well, uh, actually, I want to touch base back on what you just said real quick. Yeah, that, that is a great standpoint. Um, like, for instance, I always look at like Elon Musk as a great example. One of the smartest men out there. But at the same time, as far as like public speaking, he's not very good at it. You know, he can either speak way above your head. There's a lot of ums. He might be socially awkward. He's probably better than I am. But that's beside the point. He's not the best public speaker out there. I've noticed some of the smartest people in the world aren't the best public speakers. And some of the best public speakers aren't the smartest people in the world. So there's a side for both both parties, especially if we're both going towards the same cause. And I'm sure you'll butt heads from time to time. But at the same time, we're both going towards the same, you know, end goal. Uh, but yeah, to actually get into venomous snakes back when I was 12 years old, like I said, I went out to Arizona because my family lives in Arizona and uh, I was looking for rattlesnakes and tarantulas. I was actually looking for tarantulas and scorpions. I wasn't expecting to ever come across a rattlesnake, but I was walking along through the desert at night with a flashlight and I shine down at my feet and they blend in so well. I almost stepped on what was either a Western diamondback or a Mojave. I'm pretty sure it's a Western Diamondback, but it could have been a Mojave. I was 12. I wasn't real versed in identifying crotalids at night with flashlights. Um, but uh, I, I almost stepped on him. Like I was two inches from putting my foot down on the ground, and he was on the ground right there. And from everything the Discovery Channel had taught me up until that point, this snake was going to try to murder me. It was going to chase me home. It was going to probably try to shoot my friends and stuff like that. So <laughs> I was terrified. I'm like, this is not going to end good. So I back up slowly, hoping that nothing bad's going to happen. And he didn't really move. He just sat there and looked at me. I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, I, I've never heard a rattlesnake rattle, so I'd like to hear him rattle. I'm going to try to find a stick in the desert, which is like impossible. But I finally found a twig that would work, and I moved him a little bit. I'm like, maybe he'll rattle. That'd be so cool. And he didn't care. He's just like, man, leave me alone. I'm going about my way. And he did. He never did rattle, never got defensive whatsoever. So I'm like, man, that really changes my aspect on like what venomous snakes are you know up until i was seven or nine or whatever I, I always thought snakes are evil creatures you know everybody's taught me that these things will go out of their way to hurt you and then i got a pet snake and i'm like wow that couldn't be farther from the truth and then i'm like well venomous snakes must be evil creatures and then i got to know venomous snakes and i'm like wow that couldn't be farther from the truth so what's actually the truth and now i'm just on a quest to figure out what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, what are some of the stuff you have in your collection right now? And like, especially like, what's probably the thing you're most proud of having and keeping? Uh, so, I film like two or three different collections. So, a lot of people see stuff in my collection. And they're like, oh, you don't own that animal. No, you're 100% honest. I don't own that animal. You are right. But I do own a lot of animals. You know, it just depends. But uh, the coolest thing I've ever worked with are Red, in my opinion, is the Martinique lanceheads, uh, which are from the Martinique Island. Uh, if you know much about the fertile lance, as far as we can tell, the uh, Bothrops atrox actually probably floated out on some debris or something and got onto four different islands. 
one being Snake Island with the Golden Lance Head, one being the Martinique Island, and you got the St. Lucian Island, and then you got uh, the Alcatraz Island, not to be confused with the one with the prison on it. But uh, the Alcatraz Island is considered to be the rarest pit viper in the world, uh, Bothrops Alcatraz, I, I do believe. And then the Martinique Island, they're extremely rare because it's a very small footprint, you know. Everybody knows about the Golden Lance Head. I mean, that's notorious. But uh, then the St. Lucian, very cool snake as well. Well, the Martinique and St. Lucians are awesome because they get massive. They get, you know, eight feet long. They, they're just huge. Their venom is terrifying. All the insular forms just seem to have an extremely toxic venom. Uh, it can cause, you know, massive brain hemorrhage and all this, which is pretty scary. But at the same time, that venom, it kind of targets the brain. So I don't know that it's going through the blood-brain barrier. You know, it could definitely get in a different way, but it could be also going through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, I don't know that there's much research done on that yet, but if it was going through the blood-brain barrier, it could be very beneficial for, for uh, uh, medication applications, you know, trying to get medicine for like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's to actually get to the brain if we could figure out how to cure those. Um, but I actually bred those, which was the first time, as far as I can tell, that they have been bred since 1901 in the United States. I had th thought that we were the first ones to ever breed them in the United States until I was reading one of uh, Raymond Dittmar's books and found out that he had actually bred them in 1901. So <laughs> I was wrong. Thought we did it first, but no, we didn't. But that was really cool. Right now, I like focusing a lot on animals that are extremely smart. Uh, I like the intelligence aspect. So like mambas are really smart. Forest cobras are pretty smart. Uh, king cobras are intelligent. Your crocodilians are freaking awesome. But I like trying to teach them things to see how their brain actually works. Yeah, you want to. So that's something a lot of people don't realize. Well, people don't look at reptiles in general as being super intelligent. And we've talked a lot on the show about crocodilians and monitor lizards and stuff. But I think snakes get left out a lot. So you want to kind of just go into to that and their intelligence and what you see with that? Yeah. Uh, so like cobras, as far as, let's say a monocle cobra, which is the most commonly kept in, in the United States, I would say, I don't consider them smart at all. They just seem to be very dumb. They just are very reactive and uh, they will hit the glass of their cage all day long. They don't care. They don't ever mm -hmm. learn. You, you'll walk by 20 times and they'll still do the same thing. Um, but like a forest cobra, a lot of times, if it's not completely spooked, we'll sit back inside the corner or sit up inside the tree and we'll just sit there and just watch you. They won't hood because they understand that glass is there. Now, once that glass comes open, they act totally different, which is pretty neat. And then they're also extremely defensive over their cage. Uh, they, they will defend their cage, for lack of a better term. If you try to reach in, they are very defensive. Once you get them out of their cage and you let them stroll around the room and calm down a little bit, they typically calm down. I mean, they're they're just like a pine snake or corn snake. You know, they honestly don't do much. They can, but they typically don't. Um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting seeing how they work. Like I said, the mambas won't typically hit the glass. Now, once that door is open, bets are off. They understand that door, um, which is pretty interesting, understanding glass. Now, when you first get them, that's, yet again, all bets are off on that too. They'll hit that glass all day long. But uh, I don't know, They they do seem to have, pretty good intelligence. Like I've, I've seen people with indigo snakes where you can sit there and you can hold the mouse inside your hand and the snake will come up and take the mouse out of your hand. It's like, he didn't just go off sensory receptors to tell him that your hand smells like a mouse and just bites you instantly. He'll figure out where the mouse actually is. So he isn't getting, you know, tangled up in other things. And like, that's so interesting. As far as the crocodilians, uh, 
I've worked with 13 alligators in one pond, taught them to station in one location, and then called them up individually by name. And it took me about two weeks to get most of them to understand what was going on. And then altogether, it probably took two months to get some of the most stubborn individuals to come up by their name. Now, one day we had an incident where a child had threw a baby bottle over the fence and the alligator got a hold of the baby bottle. And I didn't know that alligators like milk, but this alligator was not giving me that baby bottle back for nothing. <laughs> so uh, the water is only about three feet deep. So I got down into the water. I could see where everybody was. Got down into the water, chased that alligator down. The other alligators were freaking out. Like you got to be mindful. The smallest alligator in this pond was six foot long, the biggest being nine foot long. Uh, almost like probably 350 pounds. And I grabbed a hold of the female and she outdid me. Every wrestling match in the water we had, she won. But I finally got a hold of her back legs good enough. I got her up on shore. And when I did that, I uh, actually got a hold of her. And that was, once I got a hold of her, she spun around on me and tried to get the, tried to get my leg. So I got the bottle back. But it was just interesting that no one came after me whatsoever when I got down into the water. Because they're like, well, we don't feed inside the water. We feed on that platform. If I was to go up on that platform, they would have lined up. Mm, I tried that yeah. originally, but she wouldn't come out of the water, unfortunately. <laughs> she had already got her piece, so she didn't care about what I had to offer. Right. Um, so something I I didn't get to. So I saw this video um, that you did, but I didn't get to watch it. Um, so I was curious if, if you could talk about it. But it was talking about... Something about a deadliest snake in COVID nineteen. Sorry, you cut out like right there. I didn't catch that. Oh, sorry. It's it was a it was a video about some sort of a venomous snake in COVID nineteen, like possibly being able to help COVID nineteen. Yeah. So I don't fully understand how it works, but it was oh. the uh, Bothrops jararaca Sioux from South America. Uh, it seems as if there's something that said it's a venom that could possibly. Uh, kill the COVID-19 variant. I, I want to say that it was like 70% of people that they had tried this on or, or test subjects or whatever that they tried this on was successful, you know, which is kind of interesting. I don't, yet again, like I didn't fully research it because I, I don't think that they're using that. I think they're still leaning towards the vaccine, but it was still pretty interesting. Now, if you know much about Bothrops, uh, Bothrops Jararaca and Bothrops Jararaca Sioux from South America, the Jararaca is actually what we derived uh, the ACE inhibitor that lowers blood pressure in Captopril, which is one of the top 20 medications of all time um, yeah. as far as market cap. And it's valued, I do believe, at $20 billion. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but it's a ridiculous number um, at the same time that, what is it? It's one in three people in the United States at some point in their life will suffer from high blood pressure. Most people during their uh, issues with this disease uh, will use Captopril at some point. So you're saving one out of three people in theory. I mean, you know, you can say, well, it's only one out of seven. Okay. One out of seven. That's still a huge freaking number. Absolutely. But, yeah. So it's a, so their venom's a, a, um, anticoagulant. Um, are there neurotoxic, um, effects in it at all or? Yeah, so it just depends on, on the species that we're talking about. Like there's so many, a lot of people see it originally, the original, you know, teachings was it's either hemotoxic or neurotoxic and that's it. Right. And that's a really crap way to look at it because a lot mm -hmm. of neurotoxic snakes have hemotoxic properties. A lot of mm -hmm. hemo have neurotoxic properties. And the more we research that, the more we learn every single day. 
Uh, like there's a Eastern Diamondback locality in Georgia that has some of the most neurotoxic venom out there. So we've always looked at it as a hemotoxin. But then you got your cytotoxins, myotoxins, mm-hmm. uh, cardiotoxins. Um, and then your neurotoxins can be presynaptic, postsynaptic. It, it's, it's honestly just a blender of what's going on. And that's what I find to be pretty crazy is you can have a, a guy buy a hundred acre plot of land and he's like, I hate snakes and he kills everything he sees. But in all actuality, that one single locality that he has could be the only locality that has this specific toxin. And that specific toxin could be the cure to God only knows what. Like we found out that the Southern Copperhead venom has uh, what they call a torture statin, which is um, a toxin that they're using as an anti uh, tumor medication for people with breast cancer before they give the breast cancer, uh, before they try to remove the breast cancer, they'll give them this medication to keep it from, you know, spreading essentially. And, uh, it's, it works, it works very well. Um, but that being said, what if we find the next cure to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, whatever, and, but that person wiped out that entire population on their property. So we're never going to get that back. You know, the biodiversity is there, but we're destroying it, which is my biggest worry. But yeah, as far as uh, a lot of your your South American pit vipers can have neurotoxic properties to their venom. And um, some of them are like Mugenize. That's a scary venom, which Bothrops Mugenize, which is, I do believe they call it the Brazilian lancehead. Uh, I'm not real great with my common names, unfortunately, <laughs> but very That's interesting stuff. Yeah, it's it's better than not being good at the scientific name. So, <laughs> yeah, it it is. It can be for sure. It just depends who you're talking to, though. If you're yeah, trying true. to talk to a class full of young kids, you better know your common names. Right, exactly. I <laughs> have no clue what you're talking about. Exactly. You're literally speaking Latin to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, funny you mentioned that. I I do have. I actually have a T-shirt. On the back of it, it says "Venom Saves Lives," and it has a a copper, a southern copperhead in the breast cancer uh, logo thing. So, um, also to your point too, timbers, and I could have this backwards, but timbers in in Georgia are hemotoxic, whereas up like in the Kentucky area are neurotoxic, more neurotoxic and stuff. So, but no, I was I was curious because I was wondering because I'm I, I'm come from more of the research side, so I was curious of how. Um, event like venom which is protein how that could um affect like a virus you know like like COVID-19 so I was I was curious on how that would work so I was I was wondering if it was like hemotoxic or if it was anticoagulant that's that's very interesting to me I have to look into that more that's pretty interesting yeah I mean venom is like a, a huge I mean for instance your uh nausea uh Legionis, which is your what is it? The Moroccan black cobra? I, I can't remember. It's it's a, one of the hajis, but it has seventy six different proteins in its venom, so seventy six different potential actions that it could do. And a lot of people think that it's a freight train flowing through the body, just wreaking havoc, which it technically is, I guess. But it's very methodical in the fact that one protein will go, you know, raise the blood pressure. One will go speed up the heart rate. One will go over here. And all those things combined is what makes it deadly. Um, otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be necessarily, you know, deadly. We could isolate just one of those actions and use that for our benefit. So, and then you also got to look at venoms. A lot of venoms are actually have uh, 
bacteria living inside of them. So a lot of people get really bad secondary infections after a bite, but a lot of venoms are also um, uh, antibacterials, essentially, uh, like bee venom is a great example. Any venom typically from an animal that is communal will have uh, uh, antibacterial properties. So that's why like you see everybody using honey as a antibacterial or they'll be using it on a wound because they're like, well, it takes down inflammation. Well, the inflammation is a product of the venom. And I do believe that the antibacterials from the venom is also inside the honey inside minute amounts. But if you rub enough honey on you yet again, you know, so, mm -hmm. I mean, it works. People have known about that since they, even the pharaohs were buried with honey. So absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I noticed you do a lot of work with uh, Bushmasters, which to me have always been kind of my favorite uh, pit viper. So uh, I don't know much about their captive history or much about their natural history. So you want to go and bit of the history about the largest pit vipers in the world? Yeah, I, so I love Bushmasters. I'm obsessed with those. <laughs> they are very neat because they're such a big monstrous pit viper but at the same time they can be so finicky they can be so hard to keep and it's ridiculous um we we've spent a lot of time researching trying to figure out the best way to keep them uh we went over a lot of the care notes from like the late dean reba because honestly he was a god when it came to keeping bushmasters he definitely knew what he was doing um but we literally struggled for a hundred years trying to figure out how to keep these things in captivity because they're honestly a struggle uh, they're very susceptible to a lot of issues. One of the biggest being like a fungal issue. If they have any wet bedding, uh, they will develop this red belly fungus in getting rid of that. I mean, typically you have to use like a, a, a chlorhexidine, uh, like a 1% soak or 5% soak. And that's just a pain because also Bushmasters tend to stress out. They'll actually build up lactic acid a lot, like a great white shark or a uh, large crocodile. So handling them too much will be the death of them. So if you ever see me inside a video handling one, more than likely I'm cleaning the cage. I just took two minutes to get in front of a camera real quick to talk about it too. And uh, so a lot of people wanna see more Bushmaster content. And it's like, uh, I don't know that I can do that. You know, <laughs> there's only so much I can do. You know, I try not to handle them for fun, but the Bushmasters range is so different. So the South American Bushmaster, uh, Lachesis Muda, is the longest pit viper in the world. Uh, there's some reports saying that they can get 14 feet long. I think that's a huge overstatement. I, I think that 11 feet is obtainable, much bigger than that. I don't, I don't know. I think it's like that 30 foot anacondas. You know, I just don't believe that that's a real thing. You know, maybe back a hundred years ago before it was so developed, you know, maybe possibly, but I don't really think that that's the thing we're gonna see nowadays. Um, but at the same time, your black headed Bushmaster, which only comes from a very small region of Costa Rica and just a tiny little speck in Peru. And that's actually debatable if they've actually been found there or not. Those animals don't get as big. They only get probably about eight feet, maybe just a little bit bigger for some outliers. But they also have much larger venom glands and they also have a much more toxic venom and they don't act anything like the South American Bushmaster. South American Bushmasters are like corn snakes, except for nighttime, they're food aggressive. But black-headed Bushmasters, it's like one of the hardest snakes in the world to tail. They will spin on you quicker than, they never take their eyes off of you either. Like, you know, a lot of snakes, if you're working with a venomous snake, you're kind of waiting for it to run in order to grab its tail and hook it up. These things never back down. They never turn around. They're always on you, always sensing, always, they, they will hold their ground all day long. Um, 
unfortunately past that, if they get stressed out doing this, they'll actually puff up their neck and hiss to a degree. Uh, they're actually said to whistle throughout their native range, um, which I, I think is kind of weird because I don't think that they actually whistle. I'm not sure what those people are hearing. You know, I think it's just a folklore, but at the same time, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe in the wild, maybe they get so worked up that they do whistle. Uh, they're such a rare animal in the wild, it's really hard to tell what they're doing because like black-headed Bushmasters, I got books from 30 years ago that didn't even list them as a species. Probably books are 50 years ago. I keep forgetting that it's not year 2000, it's 2020, but whatever. Uh, it's probably about 50 years ago. They weren't even listed as a species. Um, you know, there, there isn't much known about them. So there was a, a team of herpetologists that went down to Costa Rica for two years specifically looking for black-headed Bushmasters. Team of 13 people, two years, and they only found one specimen. So that's how rare these animals are. Not only that, the locality that they're in is smaller than most counties in the United States. It's a very small range, just tiny little dot on the map. They've never been found in a secondary forest. It's always original growth forest that they've been found in. They don't seem to move back into these areas that have been, you know, reforested. Uh, they seem to live underground. They live inside the Paca and the Goody Barrows, and that might be why you never see them. But the fact that they're extremely susceptible to fungal issues and the fact that they live in a jungle is just weird to me. I still don't, I guess it's probably the tannins from the leaves and all of that that takes care of the fungus in the wild. But in captivity, there isn't all that unless you do a really good bioactive setup and get, you know, everything dialed in perfectly. But I've known a lot of people that were very good at doing that, and they failed at keeping black-headed Bushmasters. So then you also have, of course, your Stenophrys, uh, your Central American Bushmaster, which is also in the same range in Costa Rica. If you look at it from a vertical map, they're just north of the blackheads, right? There's a big mountain range that separates the two. But they also live in Costa Rica, and those guys are meaty. They're fat and thick, and they also get very long. I think weight-wise, they're probably the biggest Bushmaster in the world. Then you also have uh, Lachesis acrodata, which is a very small, kind of uglier, kind of muddy variation of the Bushmaster. And uh, all in all, they're really neat. They're really cool. They use those heat-seeking pits very well, but they don't seem to care how big the animal is they'll always try to take it down unfortunately they can't eat anything very big because they have a very delicate neck so i honestly don't know how they survive into the wild because they will chase me around the room if it's feeding time i've had them launch out of the cage every time i open the cage around feeding day and uh, it is ridiculous the way they lunge forward it's incredible their strikes kind of not that impressive but just that whole movement forward is pretty impressive once they start getting stressed out, they'll actually seize up and get as tight as a two by four and trying to hook a two by four back into the cage is almost impossible. <laughs> After that, they will start to flail around. If you've ever had a seven or eight foot snake flail around the room, it's uh, pretty terrifying because they're just throwing their body in the stupidest way possible. And past that, if you don't leave them alone, they tend to die. So <laughs> it's one of those things that stress can build up so quick and for no reason. You can do everything right and they'll still stress out for no reason. Uh, it takes them seven to nine years to reach sexual maturity, which is crazy. So keeping them in captivity, getting to, to, to breed in captivity is just, it's a lot of work. Uh, this year, hopefully, if all goes well, we will be breeding black-headed Bushmasters. Um, we're working with some South American Bushmasters, growing them up now. Seeing the growth rate on those guys is insane. Just last week, I entered the reptile room to check them out, and they are bigger than what I didn't even know those were the same snakes. <laughs> like, what are those? <laughs> like, oh, okay, they've been fed twice. I see. I understand. 
but they're they're very cool, very demanding. Um, there's some Costa Rican studies that show that uh, black-headed Bushmaster, anybody bit has a 69% mortality rate, which I think isn't possible, but that's what they say. Uh, then there's a study that showed four out of five people bitten die regardless of medical treatment, which I still don't see how that's possible. Like no other snake in the world has that sort of mortality. Um, I, I mean, even like coastal type hands, black mambas, you know, salt scale vipers, none of those hold that mortality. I mean, we're looking at maybe 28% at some of the highest. And these are said to be at 69%. That's ridiculous. Crazy. I don't, I only think that I can think if that's true, maybe they were so far into the jungle and they finally found the snake yeah. and it bit them. And according to Dean Reba, after one of his bites, when he was inside the jungle, he said that he didn't care to live anymore. He was 30 minutes in and he said, all he wanted to do was cuddle up on the ground and die. That's what he wished for. But everybody kept making him walk out of the jungle. He's like, I don't want to go. <laughs> so wow. maybe it's just the pain so bad that you just give up, you know, possibly. Yeah. So, with you uh, being in, sorry, go ahead, Nick. Uh, maybe just because they're such a big snake, they may have a really big venom yield compared to like a salt scale viper. Oh yeah, for sure. Comparatively to a salt scale viper, but I mean, comparatively to a gaboon viper, which also has an extremely toxic venom. I mean, yeah. gaboon vipers have a much larger venom yield. But I don't know. Yet again, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Yet again, people could be getting bit by a fertile lance and, and everybody thinks it's a Bushmaster bite too. You know, they just find a dead body in the jungle and they take for granted. But uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of folklore around them and I don't think that they're nearly as big of an issue as people think that they are because they're so rarely seen. I think if they were as common as like fertile lance, that would be a very scary issue. Uh, but it, what's weird is the fact that a lot of people get bit on the hands and the arms and you're like, why, why are these snakes biting so high that people must be trying to handle them? But that's not actually true at all. It's the fact that the people are carrying a torch at night, you know, like a lantern. And the oh. snake sees that heat. It's about the right size of a rodent. So they just go after it and end up hitting their hand. And, and that's the, the main issue. So could you, hypothetically speaking, because um, I know like, um, I know some herpetologists still go to like places like Sri Lanka and like um, places like South Africa and like Swaziland and just give people shoes because it, like just having them wear shoes dramatically decreases uh, the amount of snake bites and, and deaths from snake bites and stuff. Um, hypothetically speaking, could you, I don't know, get them like a light bulbs <laughs> you know like <laughs> like yeah. something that doesn't give off heat or something like flashlights or whatever you know yes that would be a that would probably work you know something that doesn't but what's weird is like i've even opened up they don't seem to be that sensitive to light i don't think that they can see very well in light okay. at least the black-headed bushmaster they don't seem to have very good vision they're only relying on those heat signatures but I have LED lights in my building and I have a video on TikTok of one shooting straight up at the LED light and he almost hit it. I mean, we're talking like a four foot and it's like a five foot snake and he shot straight up and almost got the light bulb. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So there's still enough heat that he read it and he noticed, which they say that rattlesnakes can tell, you know, I think it's a, what is it? Two one hundredths of a degree difference in temperature. Yeah. So they can see that. And if it's moving too, they're on it. Um, but yet again, Bushmasters are so rare to see into the wild. They say that a lot of people that live within the black-headed Bushmasters range in Costa Rica have never seen them. They, they don't, like they have myths about them and they talk about them, but they've never actually seen a living snake. 
typically the people that do find them are the people that are hunting the agouti or the paca. They'll be trying to get them out of the burrows and they'll come across the Bushmaster at that time. So, I mean, I totally strongly believe that, you know, in like Africa or Egypt, you know, giving those people shoes for the salt scale vipers, that would be huge because the salt scales are everywhere. I mean, they're more common than, than grasshoppers here. You know, I mean, they're just everywhere. But the, um, off your point about the uh, them being able to tell within a hundredth degree, I think this is super cool. I don't, I don't know if you know about this. There's this squirrel that will, um, when encountered by like a, a, a rattlesnake or something, it will flick its tail really fast to raise the heat in its tail so that the snake will think that it's its central body and it'll strike that, which is a much less fatal strike than a strike to the body, which I think is really cool that they use their like super acute sense against them and stuff. It's crazy. That is unreal. I actually didn't know that about the squirrel. That's really cool. So that, that's also why a lot of people think that the Eastern Diamondbacks and uh, canebrakes, uh, timber rattlesnakes, also their venom is evolving essentially. A lot of people think that it's happening overnight, but that's not actually the case. It does take you know time for this to happen. But it seems as if the squirrels are adapting to you know be okay. They have ways to survive the venom of you know the uh, original with, with the venom. Of course, the venom is always changing, but it seems as if the squirrels are adapting to the venom. So the venom is adapting to the squirrels. And that's why it seems like certain ranges are different. You know, yeah. just another interesting fact that blew my mind that I just learned the other day uh, was the fact that scoloporous lizards, if they're bitten by a tick that's carrying Lyme disease, uh, they actually will not get Lyme's disease. And not only that, the tick that bit them, from my understanding, then will no longer carry Lyme's disease. No way. And I don't understand that. And that I heard from Hank Green, uh, which if you don't know, he's a great author. I love his book, but that's beside the point. He's also extremely smart. He should not know this much about reptiles. He shouldn't be teaching me about reptiles. Get out of here. <laughs> that's my <laughs> subject. And he just throws stupid little facts. And I'm like, how do you know that? But that's that's so really cool. interesting. So yeah, I look into that. if you haven't heard the story, I actually was out looking for timber rattlesnakes because it's like one of my bucket list species to see a nice den in, in the wild and get some really cool pictures or whatever, you know. And uh, I was looking for timbers and I was up on this hillside and I came across, you know, Copperhead. And I, we had heard one of my friends had heard a timber on this hillside. That's why we was looking. But anyway, I got down from there a couple of weeks later. I'd actually lost feeling in my legs. I didn't really understand that. And I went to the doctors and the doctors didn't understand that. And then all of a sudden I started getting joint pain out of this world. I didn't understand what was going on. I dang near lost the ability to walk. Um, I felt like death. Like I would have had to feel better to die. Like that's the only way I can describe it. The pain was unreal. Um, I, I've done some crazy things in my life, like third degree burns and stuff. Nothing compared to this. And it finally came. One of my redneck friends at work said, hey, have you checked into Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? It kind of sounds like that could be what's going on. And I'm like, I don't know who you think you are, but no, we haven't checked into that. We will check into it. And uh, yeah, so Travis saves, saved my life by mentioning that one because it comes to find out I had had Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever for a couple months now. And uh, that is a uh, a disease carried by ticks. Right. And what's crazy is the fact that a adult male timber can eat up to 4,500 possibly Lyme disease carrying ticks instead of a single season by eating the squirrels and rodents that they consume naturally. It's like, man, if there would have been more timbers on that hillside, maybe I wouldn't have almost died. 
And people just freak out, oh, you know, kill the snakes, kill the shut up, get out of here, vet. That's some stupid talk. You have no idea what they're doing for us. Wow, that's can, somebody sorry, go, you know, go ahead and make a joke. Like in America, look, we have eight thousand venomous snake bites a year, give or take. And then we have four people die from a venomous snake bite. They're not the bad culprit that you think they are. I understand in India they're an issue, but that's also a medical issue. You know, they literally don't have the hospitals that have the electricity that have the anti-venom. That's exactly. the issue. If we can fix that, the snake bite won't be nearly as bad over there. Or the shoe thing. If you give them shoes, we also fixed that issue. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I, that's something I would have never thought of, of snakes in the pest control game, like eating squirrels, which are carrying all these ticks and pests and stuff. That's crazy. Um, so, so with you being in like the education slash entertainment, um, uh, field with your YouTube channel and all that, um, how do you balance between making sure it's, something that grabs people's attention, you know, so that you're getting the word out, but also making sure that you're being responsible with it. Um, like I know a lot of people bring up like Steve Irwin, you know, he was great at getting people engaged and stuff. And he didn't always necessarily do like the smartest thing either. So um, I know a lot of people have different philosophies on that. So I was curious of what, what yours is. That's probably the hardest question in the world right there. He just nailed it. Uh, Cause I always want to be seen as a responsible handler, but since I'm over here trying to be the responsible handler, I never get the shock and all. If I can get the shock and all, I can get the viewership up. I can reach more people. So where is that fine line? That's, that's a great question. I always see it as I'll do just about anything on camera to grab your attention. If it doesn't involve possible death, it isn't that I'm afraid of dying or that I don't think that I can handle what I'm doing. It's just the fact that, I don't want you to see it and you not know what I put into it to do that in order to get that shot. And then you try it at home and you didn't follow those 19 prior steps. So something happens to you. And a lot of people's like, well, yeah, but race cars still on TV and, and that kid could buy a car and drive real fast. Yeah. I, I don't care about that. You know, in all actuality, at the end of the day, I want you to use your hooks. I want you to handle responsibly. And I hope that you'll do that. You know, just if nothing else, just for the ability to be able to, do this long term. I mean, the more bites, the higher that red flag is raised, like, hey, maybe we need to do something about this hobby. This hobby does not look professional. People are getting bit all the time. That doesn't look good. You know, so if we can sustain from getting bit, it looks like we're more professional. We can be held at a higher standard. At the same time, how do you reach those people? The sad part is, is I don't think that a lot of people have that in their best interest. A lot of people go for just the shock and all. So for me, that's trying to do it professionally, I got to try to keep up with that. And how do you? I mean, exactly. I haven't figured it out. If I could, I would be as big as some of the other guys. But and I can I can handle like that. But why? You know, why do I want to put myself in danger? Why do I want to put my animals in danger? Why do I want to, you know, I don't mind showing you that I can sit right next to a copperhead. I've put out a TikTok of me sitting, you know, a foot away from a copperhead, just showing people that he's not going to do anything because I'm not going to do anything. We're just sitting here hanging out. He doesn't know that I know that he's there and I'm not going to move any closer towards him because he's comfortable right now. But at the same time, a lot of people just pick the copper head up. <laughs> it's like, come right. on now, don't right. do that. I understand that you can and that you know what's going on, but can that nine-year-old at home that's watching you? It's like, don't, don't do that. I mean, I don't know. I, I am not necessarily bashing some people that do it like 
I always bring him up and one of these days he's going to write me a letter to, to stop using his name. But Nick mm -hmm. from Wicca Wildlife is in Australia and in Australia they handle snakes differently. If he has a snake that is a bad temperament, he will handle it with all the tools required for his safety. If he has a snake that is extremely calm, he's been working with for 10 years, he'll just sit there and hold it and keep the head away from him and show you that snake all day. And he's never made me nervous when he does that. He's never put me at a time where I'm like, oh, he shouldn't be doing it like that. At the same time, he's not sitting there like, look at me, look at what I'm doing, ain't I crazy? He's just showing me the snake. He's like, look at this one. Isn't this one beautiful? And I'm like, it is, you're right. It is a beautiful snake. Mm -hmm. But some people use it just as an attention grabber, which yet again, in order to live inside this, this, you know, if I want to do this full time, you have to grab attention somehow. So you can use nice titles and good thumbnails, but at the same time, at the end of the day, I think about the only way I'm going to be able to shock people is by just the rarity of stuff I can show them. That might be my only <laughs> ticket out of the nine to five, maybe. I, I don't know. Um, or just, you know, shock people by knowledge that they didn't originally know, you know, talking about contortristat and, and stuff like that. People don't seem to understand that venoms can be used for more than just killing things. So I don't know. It's it's it is a very fine line. It's it's a hard one to figure out. And if I ever do figure it out, I will let you know. <laughs> but it's a tough subject. I have no clue on, you know, where that fine line is. And the bad part is, is you can't please everybody. You know, for example, on my King Cobra video, I had some friends that I look up to and they see me at one point put down the hook and just pick up the King Cobra. And the reason being is my wrist had given out at that point. The King Cobra was too big. I couldn't hold it any longer. It was more dangerous for me to use the hook at that point. So I was keeping its head away from me and I was putting it back into the bin without the hook. And people were like, oh my gosh, he's free handed. It's like, meh. I'm not cuddling it. I'm not trying to kiss it on right. the lips. I'm trying to put it back into the tub yeah. and not get bit is my goal. If I need to put it down, I will and get a different, you know. But at that time, I was just so shaky. Just, you know, the strength that that animal had. I didn't have the stamina, apparently. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I had a boss at uh, one of my internships. He said that uh, people only like a show if it either A, goes really, really well, or B, it goes terribly wrong. So... I've, I've always thought, you know, when I originally started out back in 2010, no one was really doing it. No one was really pushing the limit. And I'm like, man, if I can stand here three feet away from this black mom and I can show people that this black mom isn't actively pursuing me, he's just sitting here looking at me. And then I can talk. I'm like 50 percent of people will be watching for me to die. There'll be the NASCAR race waiting for the crash. And I'm like, I'm OK with that. And the other 50% will be watching because they find it interesting. At the end of the day, I hope that the all 100% learn something out of this video. But then by 2015, 2016, so many people were like, check it out. I can put a death adder on my face. <laughs> I can't compete with that. Like, that's no. your, you, that's, you're crazy. You were literally got a death wish, but okay. Yeah, I had a Jim Harrison. Um, he whenever he does uh, um, venom extractions, he always tells people, he's like, if this is exciting, then I'm doing my job wrong. <laughs> he's like, he's like, uh, if 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 I'm boring you, then that means I'm doing it correctly. But um, when I was there at the zoo, I um, I was given a tour to this kid, and he had watched some YouTuber uh, get bit by a lot of stuff because he thought it was cool. And so the kid came in, kept asking me to release the snakes to let him bite them and stuff. 
and he wanted the picture with the gator, so he banded the gator's mouth, and he was upset because he wanted to get he he wanted the picture with the gator just so he could get bit by the gator because he he thought it was cool. And it's just like this eight year old kid. It's, it's crazy. It, at that was the moment when I realized that um, these people have more of a pool than you would think. You would think something like that would be obviously you don't want to do, but these kids they're they're doing it. It's crazy. It's not good. Yeah. And the sad part is, as they say nowadays, common sense isn't so common. And I do strongly believe that you never know who you're speaking to. So, you know, like, for instance, on my on my TikTok, at one point, I'm not pulling those numbers quite right now, although the numbers are still way up there. I was getting a million views a day. So this was for two months period at 61 million people that had seen me. And it's like 61 million people. How many of these people are willing to do stupid stuff to obtain what I've obtained on here? You know, it's like I don't. I don't want to condone if you come up to me and can spit as many facts as I will be so much more blown away than the fact that you can pick up a black mom. I don't anybody can do it once. Can you do it for 10 years? You know, that's the question. The fact is, I'm going almost 18 years now without ever receiving a bite. I've had like two or three close calls and all those close calls were totally preventable. One, I grabbed a bag from the wrong end once. and, And up until that point, I'd always said, how could someone be that stupid? And then that day I was that stupid. You know, I grabbed the Dynakista Dynakutis by the head in the bag. And I'm like, that was a head of a Dynakista Dynakutis. Oh. <laughs> He's like, someone touched me. You know, I'm like, ooh, that was close. That wasn't cool at all. And uh, then another time I was distracted. Someone was talking my ear off. They were just like an auctioneer. Just, you know, the whole time I was sitting there spraying snakes. And the cobra came straight up, which they typically never come straight up i was well above them but still he had the reach i guess he thought i was a mouse i'd never seen a it was a samar cobra the uh, uh, little uh, popcorn cobras as some people call them. those guys they're crazy anyway they're so twitchy and so quick and yeah he shot straight up and it was close i think that was way too close but yet again i shouldn't have had that distraction there i should have told that distraction go on i'm busy right now especially while working with these crazy little guys you know this isn't a rattlesnake this isn't something i just stay five feet away from and i'm fine these guys are springy, but uh, yeah, besides that, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I strongly believe that yet again, so this hobby or, or this profession or whatever you look at it as, there's no reason to get bit most of the time. Um, you can go your entire career without getting bit. You don't have to get bit. Now, if you're looking at somebody like Jim Harrison, yeah, I mean, he's pinning a snake. you got to be within one scale of that pin every single time. He's handling... They say, statistically speaking, he gets bit once every 60,000 handlings. Yeah. Okay, good enough. I mean, I can't. I, I'm not doing those numbers, you know. So I, I, But for your average person, I'm handling literally probably 400 snakes on any given week. And, I mean, yet again, sometimes I'm a little tired, which I shouldn't be. Sometimes I'm a little stressed and maybe I shouldn't be. You know, I shouldn't be inside the room when these things are happening. But at the same time, I'm always alert. I'm always trying to do, and if I'm on camera saying that this is dangerous, the snake's going to go wild, it's because I'm handling the worst one that we have. 90% of my work honestly de-stresses me. It's the calmest time you can have. You know, spraying the arboreal pit vipers, people think it must be just crazy. It's like jumping out of an airplane. It's like, no, man, it's it's just as easy as eating McDonald's and probably safer. I mean, it's, <laughs> honestly, it's just, I don't know. A lot of people think it's just something crazy, and it doesn't need to be. You don't need to be on edge all the time. You don't need to be doing crazy things. 
Absolutely. And I do think that for the longevity of doing this, you need to mind your P's and Q's to the best of your abilities. I think you hit the uh, the nail on the head in one of the things you said about how, um, like when you're when you're sitting there just like three feet away from like a copperhead or something like that, and people find that interesting and watch it. And a lot of times, those kind of people they already know a lot of what you're talking about. So, and there's still stuff for them to learn. But the the people that you really want to reach for the education purpose are like those those NASCAR guys and stuff. So you have to have something that draws those in. So that hopefully after watching that video or at least a, or a couple of your videos or something like that, that they walk away, not so much the NASCAR guy anymore. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head of theirs trying to draw those guys in um, it, while still, you know, doing it responsibly so that the people who are interested in it are going to stay and watch it as well. So yeah. I think I think that's the nail on the head with that. And, and I do believe there's also an audience for everybody out there. You know, I mean, at the same time, I've noticed that even some people that have the same exact content as me, they're no different than me. Honestly, I think that their content's exactly the same thing. I will go to their page and look at their commenters and their commenters are completely different people. There's, mm. you know, one out of 90 that's the same person. I'm like, oh, I recognize that person. And I actually, in that aspect, I have a photographic memory of remembering profile pictures. I'm very good at doing pictures for some reason. Uh, names, I can't remember your name ever. It just won't happen. But uh, so I'll, I'll literally notice, I'm like, wow, one out of 90 and we have the same exact content. So I think that I could build a page around doing crazy NASCAR stuff or I could build a page about responsibly keeping, you know, and honestly, this one might get more traffic, but at the end of the day, these people are going to be a lot more respectful. You know, these people are going to really want to support you. You know, these people are going to want to buy your merch, going to want to subscribe to your Patreon. You know, these people are like, I hope he gets bet this week. This could be so freaking cool, you know, but. Yeah, I didn't think about that aspect of it too, that the, the fan base is probably going to be a little bit more loyal as well. Yeah, I think so. I, I can't say for sure. I, right. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, my first notice your YouTube came across your YouTube channel probably nine, ten years ago. Uh, what first drew me to it was uh, your work with crocodilians. So, I want to go a little bit more into your experience with that. Yeah, so I've done some with crocodilians. I, I'm not very versed in it, per se. I mean, comparative to a lot of people nowadays, there's some people that are getting on YouTube that actually really know what they're doing. Um, I originally bought an alligator when I was like 15. I know, that's stupid. Don't ever do that. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I learned a lot from it, you know, when I knew that I wanted to do this for my whole life. You know, that was just kind of a thing. I've, I've never, I've always kind of been a social outcast in that aspect. I don't necessarily go out to parties. I'm more focused in on let's play with alligators or let's learn something about lizards. So once I learned, you know, about their intelligence, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. These guys are really smart. So then I got into Cayman and I'm like, these guys are cool, but they're so snappy. They're so hard to work with. And uh, from there, you know, I've worked with a couple other species. Back in the day, you used to be able to buy Nile Crocs. So I've worked with a Nile Croc before in the past. Um, and then I went on to the zoo field. And like I said, training out crocodilians for the zoos. And then I went on to a conservation center that uh, was specializing in crocodilians. And we did some work with some different crocodilians. And it was a lot of fun for sure. Um, but as far as like, like I'm definitely not specialized in them. Uh, I like 
their intelligence. And I think that could definitely be used to their advantage. Um, for instance, like just safe handling and safe moving of the animal. Uh, a lot of people are like, you know, let's go jump this crocodile. It's like, let's not jump the crocodile. You know, does he really need to be jumped? You know, give me three months of training and I can probably get him to go into the box by himself. You know, we don't necessarily need to overpower this animal. I'm not all about that. You know, I don't need to be the king of the jungle. He can be the king. That's fine. Just if he'll follow me, that's really cool. You know, but uh I, I don't know. The crocodilians are neat. I would love to have the resources to do, you know, more large crocodilians for sure. Um, and I like working with the crocodiles for sure. But at the same time, they're just so demanding. I mean, even if you just have an alligator at, at 12 feet long, you know, that's a lot of room. That's a lot of heat. That's like I can keep 40 mambas or one big alligator. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's questionable. I do like my 40 mambas a lot, you know. And they take some room too, because you got to be able to get out of the way when they come shooting out of the cage. But at the same time, room wise, nothing compared to a large crocodilian. So I would definitely like to expand on that. But as for now, I don't do a lot with the crocodilians. I do work with uh, one like six foot alligator, a smaller alligator. And then I've worked with a New Guinea croc here recently. But the New Guinea's pretty cool because a New Guinea's been, you know, raised since a little tiny baby and now it's 14 years old. And, it understands that sometimes it has to be picked up to be moved and it doesn't bite the living crap out of you, which is freaking awesome. <laughs> you know, so, so far so good. That might change, but as of now, it's pretty chill. That's awesome. Um, so, um, since a turtle was what originally got you into herpetology, are turtles your favorite group of reptiles or are you more of a snake guy now that you done more with snakes yeah that's tough so turtles are really cool i do like turtles i always have a fascination for turtles but i don't i can't say that they're on my top i i like keeping them but at the same time they're just so dirty and <laughs> they tend to always hurt themselves i've had so many turtles get hurt and i don't even know how i'm like what did you do you know how did you do that crocodilians, you know, unless, unless they're rubbing their nose on something, trying to get out or trying to break free or trying to, you know, typically they don't hurt themselves. You know, snakes, it's kind of a crapshoot, but uh, I really like the large monitors too, but yet I wouldn't mm -hmm. put turtles at my top by no means. There's some species that are just amazing, like the, the chitra or whatever, which are those giant soft shell turtles. I mean, the things get huge, you know, they're as big as you are. And it's like, wow, that's a, that's a big soft shell. But at the same time, that's a critically endangered species. So I'll probably never get to work with those, but they're really neat to see. Um, there's a lot of species, Nile soft shells, and that's a beautiful freaking turtle. Seeing a sea turtle in the wild, that's a bucket list item. But uh, as far as, yeah, they're definitely not held at the top. I, I really enjoy my snakes, but at the end of the day, crocodilians are probably the funnest to keep for the main fact of quarantines don't have to be nearly as strict. You don't have to, you know, they, they can survive almost anything. They have a ability to uh, defeat pretty much any disease, any virus. There isn't much that will touch them. You just have to make sure their diet's pretty spot on and you're good. Um, back when I was, I would say I was like 20, 21 years old, I had ended up buying a snake from a guy who was doing African imports. And I received a, it was a scrub python, which of course is not an African import, but he had enough African imported stuff. This snake was carrying paramyxivirus. And if you know anything about the virus, paramyxivirus will literally kill everything you've ever loved. It's just, it's a horrible <laughs> virus that will just wipe out reptiles. And uh, when I got it, it went through the collection. It killed everything quickly. 
it, it's like, well, there's no stopping. It is literally airborne. I mean, you can clean the hooks as much as you want to, but there's no slowing it down. Um, I have heard some people say, well, if you have like a large amount of UV on your snakes, they can survive it. Maybe. I mean, possibly. I don't know. But at the same time, I didn't have UV on anything. So seeing your collection go from really freaking awesome to nothing within two weeks is just like, wow, that was crazy. So I don't know that snakes are my favorite by any means. Sometimes they just tend to die off and that's not cool. Even if you're doing everything right, you can have some really stupid issues. So I don't know. Stuff that's tougher is awesome. I like stuff sticking around forever. I have got a really weird fascination with crabs here recently. Um, hmm. I, I don't know. I, I love the Halloween crabs. The coconut crabs is like next on the list. I'm just I'm obsessed with all these crabs. I don't know why. They're just really cool to keep. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I would it's funny about the you mentioned the turtles being super dirty. I as a kid, I would um my mom didn't like me having like she didn't want me to have a pet reptile, so I went out and caught them and and would keep them for a few weeks and let them go and stuff. And I'd I mean, everything you think of, snakes, turtles, lizards, frogs, newts, salamanders, all sorts of stuff. And uh, I did turtles for a while, but I stopped doing it because they were just so dirty. And I was constantly having to clean the cage and it just got annoying. So I stopped. And they weren't as – most of the liz- turtles I was catching were like painted or yellow belly sliders or redder sliders and stuff like that. And they're not as fun. I mean, they're fun to feed and stuff, but they're not as um, interesting to observe as like a – a lizard or a snake or something like that. So, um, so I ended up uh, stopping those just because of how dirty they were. So I thought, I thought it was funny that you mentioned that. Um, the um, there's something else you mentioned. I remember what it was now. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Funny you mentioned that was a scrub that probably responsible for wiping out your collection at that point. Because re- I've always been interested in keeping scrubs, and recently I just started getting into keeping a few scrubs. So, kind of have my fingers crossed that now that I don't have paramyxa virus go through and kill everything. So, yeah, the odds of it yeah, coming through on a scrub python is probably pretty slim. Um, it's just, you know, like I said, he brought in a bunch of African file snakes and stuff like that. And next, it just, you know, like I said, it happens, but, uh, I don't know that having a separate building for quarantine's huge, which is very tough to accomplish. I completely understand that, especially if you're bringing in, you know, like, let's say you get three snakes a week, you know, and you sell a couple over here because you think, well, I, I don't really want to focus in on that. This is what I want to focus in on. But at the same time, it's like, your building is a three month quarantine, but you just brought in two more snakes. You know, now you got to reset the quarantine clock and the next week you bring in one more snake. It's a good reset the quarantine clock. So it's best to have nine quarantine buildings. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't got the perfect system worked out yet, which I need to get a better system just in case. But uh, as far as like, yeah, the paramix of virus is a scary thing. Cryptosporidia is pretty terrifying. Um, there's, there's a lot out there just to worry about that's raises my stress level <laughs> even just talking about it the um i remember what i was gonna say you said see seeing a wild sea turtles on your bucket list uh, a month ago i saw my first one that was also on my bucket list a month because i lived down here in south florida a month ago i saw my very first uh wild sea turtle and it was 
awesome. It was very good. I only, it was only like, most of the time when you see a sea turtle, if you're like on a boat or something, it's like a second, it pops its head off and it's gone. Um, but this one actually floated down a channel and I could just like see it swimming around and stuff. It was so cool. That's so, awesome. Yeah, that yeah. would be freaking cool. Someone wanna, which is so big, like it's just amazing. Yeah. I, I do I started diving too so I'm I'm really hoping to see one diving that would be really cool. I've seen some people just uh, or I've heard of some people just they'll they'll grab them by the shells and just kind of turn them upwards and the thing will just swim upwards and just launch them up into the up up the water column and stuff. It's crazy. No, it's crazy. I always thought like those leatherback sea turtles. I mean, biggest turtle in the world. Like, how cool would that be? Like, those things are unreal. And uh. Like whenever I lived out in Maryland, I lived with a guy, a turtle guy, a turtle man, as we call them sometimes. Um, he always had, you know, just a crazy assortment of turtles so that he'd been keeping forever. And he had one, just a random story, but he had one that was uh, actually donated to him because the lady had got it when she was like seven years old. And then she lived to be like 92 and they allowed her to take it to the nursing home for the last couple of years of her life. And then they donated it to him and he had had it for 15 years. And it was just a normal little, you know, yellow belly slider or whatever. It's like, what? Like this turtle has to be what, like 105 years old or whatever. It's like, that is crazy. Um, and it's just a normal little turtle. It's, it's nothing, you know, insane, but, uh, those leatherbacks are just, he's always telling me, he's like, yeah, he's like, you know what the biggest reptile in the state is? I'm like, I, I don't know, but black snake's pretty big, I guess. He's like, no, leatherback sea turtle. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he's like, they actually are found off the coast. I'm like, that's freaking crazy. I did not know that. But uh, that's something I forget about. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, did you have a question, Nate? I think we covered a good portion of uh, everything. Uh, no, I don't have any other further questions, so... Cool. Yeah, I think that's a good place to stop because we we talked about a lot and we covered a lot, so that's good. Um, I I do think it's awesome that we have three uh, like herpetologists here, um, all from different backgrounds, like you with education, Nate's husbandry, and I'm the research side, and we're able to come together and have like a great conversation. I think that's so cool to have like a conversation with just three people, three different like perspectives of the field and, and stuff. So I think that's awesome. Um, I also think it's awesome to have people like you that don't have a background in biology that are spreading a lot of education with reptiles and stuff. So I think that's awesome. Well, thank you. I do appreciate that. Like that's one of my big things that I, that I hate and that I like a lot is the fact that I can spread awareness to a degree, but at the same time, what I hate is like I have some friends that are so much more intelligent. Just, <laughs> they make me look stupid. And it's like, man, I wish I could get that guy to speak in front of a camera, but he has no camera presence whatsoever. Like he's just, he's so bad at speaking publicly, right. but he's so freaking intelligent. It's like, if you just mix the two, you'd be golden. And it's like, I guess I just got to step up my game on the intelligence or I, I'm not that great in front of a camera either. Some people that are just really, really good. You know, it's like, man, if you get one of those guys that is also extremely intelligent, it's just, I watch some of those pages, like Veritasium, they're incredible. That guy can teach you anything. It's like, man, he makes it pretty enjoyable too. It's like, that guy's, but yeah. If you could mix Steve Irwin with Elon Musk, that'd be the perfect, uh, yeah. 
perfect combination for someone to yeah to steve Irwin's work was just incredible like the way that he could draw people in was just insane like the way he could speak he was very good and there was so much going on at play but he made it look so natural it's like man this is Absolutely. this is unfreaking real and you know some of you look back and you watched it when you were seven and you look back now and you're like that shot wasn't taken from the same place you're like that wasn't quite real Per se, but I'm like, man, it really fits the bill. Like, I don't really care. It's like the message is so good. It's like it's, I don't know, it's incredible. I was, I was just having a conversation uh, about that with Nate not too long ago about because I recently started to like rewatch some of his stuff that I haven't seen since I was a kid. And like, yeah, you can tell that it was clearly like set up and stuff. It wasn't like he just found the snake and stuff. And and he he gives this great speech on like monologue and snakes and like how they're not really like dangerous and stuff like that and it sounds like he's just coming up with it off the top of his head but you know it had to be scripted and it's so it's so cool how it's so well worded but still sounds like it's he's just like riffing and stuff and yeah so, what i think also is crazy is the way that he would underplay stuff and i'm trying to adopt that to the best of my ability you know but he was way better at it is <laughs> He would take a bite from a 15-foot retake in the face, and he's like, oh, he got me. And that was it. It's like, dude, I would be over here crying in the corner for a week. How do you just shrug that off? Like, he's just like, that ah, happens. It's like, how do you just – dude, that is a bad week. Like, that is just not good. And he just shrugs it off. And it's like, man, it's like the fact that he shrugs it off makes a lot of people like, oh, well, I guess a snake bite to the face from a 15-foot retake really isn't that bad. Maybe I shouldn't be afraid of him. It's like, whew, like, yeah, that's impressive. Like, wow, that's, you really did a good job on that one because I feel like I would have at least flinched. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> he did all the time. Those little freshwater crocs, he's like, oh, one of them bit me. I'm like, that was like a six-foot animal. That had to hurt. It's like yeah. covered in mud, and it just lanced your finger open like that. Like, oh, I'm fine. Like, that one's not very bad. I'm like, dude, I can see bone. Like, this is not good. <laughs> How are you? I saw yeah, him in an tough. interview. I saw him in an interview, and apparently, uh, that's how he was like growing up. Like, cause his dad owned like a zoo and stuff, and he would just go. Apparently, like one of his first interactions was a snake. He was just like a little kid, and he saw a snake, and, and it was I don't know remember what he what it was, but it was apparently venomous, and he just like picks it up. He's like, "Hey, dad, look at this and stuff." And he said, "Ever since you know, ever since he was a kid, he never had any kind of like fear of a snake biting him, and and." as you working with venomous snakes or just snakes in general, as you know, the, the less you care, the less likely you are to get bit. Well, the less you care that you're going to get bit, I should say, Yeah. the, the less likely you're going to get bit in. And that's one of the, so he hardly ever got bit because partially because of that and stuff. And so it's crazy that I guess, I don't know. Some people are just like that, you know? Everybody that I've ever talked to that's smarter than me says I'm completely dumb for thinking that away. But I still say, like, snakes can smell rodents from three miles away. You know, it's ridiculous how good their sense of smell is. So the fact that you walk into a room and you already have an adrenaline rush going, you know, animals can smell fear. I don't know that they can sense it. I think that it's actually an odor that comes off. You know, have you ever heard somebody say, well, uh, I've been stress sweating today, you know, I stink. It's like, I think that there's actually something to 
client. So I feel like if I walk into a room with a Mamba, I've been in the room with a hundred times. The Mamba's like, oh, he's back. He's probably going to try to pick me up, you know? And then you walk in and he's like, that guy's really on edge. Why is that guy on edge? This ain't cool. Maybe we all need to run. This doesn't smell good. Something's going on here. We need to be, is there a fire? Like what's the alarming, like something has to be off. Yeah. And I think that really puts him on edge. So yeah, a lot of people, like uh, some of these people from India, or even my friend from Australia, the fact that he always handles the snake that away, the snake's at ease, you know, I I think there's a lot to that. And I remember reading Steve Irwin's dad's book, which is just incredible. He's talking about one of the instances that Steve had actually caught, I think it was a perinti. It ran up the tree and caught a perinti, which is a large monitor, if you don't know. And it turned around and grabbed a hold of him. But his dad didn't see this. All his dad's seen is, uh, I think he said, there's just blood dripping out of the trees. And he's like, Dad, I got him. And he's like, doesn't look like it. He's like, oh, I, would, I would beg to differ. He's like, it really looks like he's got you. But uh, it's like, dude, a big monitor bite would freaking suck. Like, especially well, when you're halfway up a tree. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I've seen a copperhead from across a large field sniff like sense with its tongue sniff smell in the air and then make a beeline for a cicada up a tree on the end of a branch so yeah i mean yeah. Their, their sense of smell is super acute and i think you're right i think there's something maybe there's an odor or something that they can yeah. sense if you have a, a, a water dish up here on top of the rock and you have a rattlesnake all the way over here underneath the hide you can put water in that water dish and the rattlesnake will go over there you know three minutes later and get a drink and it's Absolutely. like the water dish was empty. How does he know that there's water in there at that exact moment? It's like he can smell water because he's a desert species. He, he you know, he knows. I mean, because there's vibrations going all around. I'm moving cages off the rack the whole time. So it ain't yeah. just the vibrations of the water hitting the bowl. He can smell that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, that's weird that you can smell water. Like, it's just, it's got to be able to sense it somehow. It's, I would almost put money on it being smell. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Snakes are, that's, we, we, I mean, we kind of touched on how snakes, you know, they're not, they're, they're intelligent. Some snakes are intelligent. They're not as intelligent as like crocodilians and, and like monitor lizards and stuff like that. But they're, even without the intelligent aspect, they're still just incredible creatures that are, just blow my mind all the time with the different stuff they could do. Yeah. I also think it's neat. Like, I definitely think the snakes have facial awareness. Like, I know that there's a couple snakes that I will work with that, if anybody else comes into the room, they will go full on crazy. But if I come into the room, I can be doing stuff in there all day and they do not care. They're like, oh, look, he's back. He might give me food. Or my friend does a lot of the feeding and I don't. And he'll come into the room and everything is on the glass. They're looking up at the top of the cage like, let's go. Let's do this. We're ready. It's like maybe it's just the smell of the person. But I think that they can they know who it is right off the bat, who's entered the room, what's going on. And you like crocodilians, a lot of people say, well, they're just a dumb reptile. They've got a lizard brain. It's like you do understand that crocodilians are more closely related to a parrot than they are a lizard from a biological standpoint. Like I don't think you don't you consider parrots smart? I do. I think they're really intelligent. So with that being said, uh, I would also say that crocodilians, even if they do have a tiny little brain, maybe they use it a lot better than what we think that they do. Um, they just, they seem to be, I mean, they remember patterns, you know, they got the high functioning cerebral cortex to remember at what point the animals are going to be migrating and they use that to their advantage. Unfortunately, a lot of people in captive husbandry don't realize this and they won't 
they'll open up the cage, put in food, close the cage, open up the cage, put in food, close the cage. Well, the next time that cage comes open, they're ready. They're on it. They're like, it's feeding time. And the person's like, it's mean. It keeps trying to bite me. It's like, no, you're stupid. That's the problem. You know, you haven't trained it anything, but the opening up the cage means food time. So yeah. Tegus are the same way. They're highly, um, I mean, they're super intelligent, but they're also highly, um, they like to get on a schedule and stuff. And I had, I, I, got a tegu and i would feed it um and i'd play with it so i made sure i played with it as often as i was feeding it so i was reaching the cage and everything um plus it was just super fun to feed or to play with and um a, a week went by and i i didn't really get to play with him at all the entire week i just got to feed him and just from that week he um at that point every single time i reached my hands to the cage he thought he was getting fed so then I, I target trained him so um each time i put the target up and it only took about a week and um then only when i put the target up he would like instantly like it was so cool to see him just instantly go into feeding mode and just like know he's getting food um but then recently i i went a couple of weeks where um i wasn't able to play with him a lot i was only doing it so now and it's kind of up on a thing so i have to stand on something to kind of get into the cage so now um every single time i would stand up there whether I had the target or not, he was starting to think he was getting fed. So now what I've started to do is um, stand just every day I've been standing up there and not feeding them. Um, I'll feed them later, but I'll just stand up there for like five minutes each day just to let him know that just because I'm standing up there, he's not getting fed. So like, it's, it's, it's cool. I mean, like you're saying with the crocodile crocodilians, I mean, it's the same thing. Like when people are walking dogs, you know, if you walk the dog past the gator every single day at the same time, it's going to learn, you know, that yeah. you're walking a Big Mac next to it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the big thing over the whole crocodilian thing is that's the thing that I don't talk about too much is the fact that we did train them to station at their one station. But also I would walk around the pond periodically picking up sticks or whatever. And if anybody came up to me for any reason, I would push them off with a stick, get, get away from me. You know, you have no business coming up to me right now. It's clearly not. I don't have the bucket. I haven't called you over here. I don't know what you're doing looking at me, but you shouldn't be. And uh just that training alone, you know, they'd figure out very quick. And same way with whenever we go to clean out the pond, we would drain the pond. And if they stayed in the pond, they were in our way, clearly. So we would typically just spray them with the hose. If we give them a bath, we'd hose them off. And they really didn't like that. So they typically, second the water started draining, they're like, got to get out, you know, and everybody get out of the pond so they wouldn't get sprayed. And uh, that worked really well. I mean, they learned very quickly. And occasionally you get one of the fat ones. It's like, I'm not getting out of the water. I'm not doing that. As he's slowly sinking, you know. It's the bottom of the concrete, give him a little spray, and he'd get out pretty quick. They, they learned. It's just but, incredible uh, how quick they take on that information. I What's interesting, you're talking about how some snakes will like people and some not. I, I find that with a, a lot of different animals, like, they, it'll either be, like, one whole, like, snakes in general, or it'll be, like, one specific type of snake, like, or or just an individual snake or, so, or something that just doesn't like an individual. Like I, I heard a story about someone who's always loved elephants, wanted to work with elephants, went to a zoo to work with elephants and all the elephants would charge her. And for whatever reason, these elephants did not like her. For, I, and I have no idea what these animals are sensing and what they're seeing, but you know, they did not like her for whatever reason. So she couldn't work with elephants. She had to work with other stuff because the elephants didn't like her, which is, I think is insane. Uh, the ball python I have was given to me because the family who had it had a ball python and then they got that one and that one just constantly kept trying to bite them and stuff. And they, I don't think it was any issues with how they're 
keeping it because they had the other one perfectly fine. And I didn't see any issues when I went over there with how they're keeping it and stuff. And that one was fine, but that one just kept biting it. I, so they asked if I wanted it. I came over that very first day. I immediately looked at it and I picked it up and I've never had any issues with it. It's never even thought about biting me. So it's just, it's just crazy how they can, I don't, I don't know what it is that it could be sense of smell something, but animals in general, just, I don't know. They're, they like some people that like they don't like others, you know. I think that hesitation is big too. Like mm-hmm. I went and picked up a children's python from some person that said mm-hmm. it was just the worst snake ever, and uh, I reached down into the bag and picked up. They're like, it's probably going to bite you. I'm like, well, I'm going to check it for mites before I get it because I just don't want mites. And every time I buy a python, I get mites. It just always happens. Yeah. So I picked it up and looked it right in the eyes. You know, looking at its face, looking around its mouth, just to make sure I don't see any mites. And they're like, it is going to bite you in the face. And I'm like, mm, probably not. But if it does, who cares? It's a little children's python. I'll be fine. Looked it all over. I'm like, ah, looks good. They're like, dude, I don't know how you didn't get bit. I'm like, just not worried about getting bit. You know, it's not the end of the world if I do. And uh, I've had another guy that gave me a berm that he called Cujo. He's, like, He's just the worst snake ever. I'm so like cuddling with it. I'm like, I'm not doing anything different. Like, I'm not acting like I'm a god or anything. I'm just sitting over here like, if you're not afraid of it, if you just go in, I don't know. It's just something about it. I've known a lot of people that can just walk up to anything, pick up anything, and they're fine. Yeah. Just, but at the same time, you got that one person that's a little hesitant. It's like, how do you get them past that hesitation? Well, I think the best way is to get bit. I mean, if you get bit by anything, you realize real quick it's not that bad. I, you know, I'd much rather get bit by a pine snake or a corn snake than stub my toe any day of the week. Your toe is really not that bad. It's like, well, if you don't think that's bad, get bit by a snake because it's yeah. nothing. It's not I've been bit by a rat. It will ruin your week. Getting bit by the snake is not oh. that big of a deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been bit by a rat and a snake, and a rat is definitely worse. Yeah, it'll ruin your week. It's just not I, a good time. I was working at a zoo, and um, they had a snake called Chompy. And it was my very first day there. And I didn't know anything about the snake and stuff, but they're like, you know, cleaning out these cages and stuff. And they're kind of telling me, you know, where different things are and, you know, their kind of uh, schedule and stuff. And they're like, so this is Chompy. And I go in there and immediately just start like putting my hand in there and cleaning the cage and stuff. And the guy just was like, his eyes widen and he just stops. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, you said to clean the cage. He's like, yeah, but that snake's like bites everyone. But it, it didn't bite me. It just like kind of like chilled there and stuff. It was just because I I didn't have that thought going in that the snake was gonna bite me and stuff. And so yeah, I I didn't have any issues. So yeah, they're fun. I don't know. It's snakes are interesting. That's what a lot of people don't understand either. You can sit there and you can buy a snake, and it's a real struggle to get it to eat. And it's a real struggle to get it to you know shed out, and it's a real struggle and you finally do it. You finally got it to shed in one piece. You finally got it to eat. You finally got it to, it's drinking really well. It's hydrated. It looks good. You've succeeded. You are the master of the snake. You kicked butt and took names. Or you can buy a dog and sit over here and just put food in front of it, put water in front of it. And then, well, why do you bond with the dog? It's like, well, yeah, I understand you can pet the dog. But this snake, I've been struggling to keep for three months now. And I finally succeeded. Like, this is actually, like, I am... I've finally been rewarded. Like my hard work has paid off. Like this is amazing. And they're like, why do you care about snakes? It's like, why do I care? Because I've struggled for three months to keep this stupid thing alive. And I finally got it. <laughs> this snake is amazing. I think it's like fly fishing. Fly fishing, um, especially like saltwater fly fishing. I just started doing that. It is an extremely frustrating, even if you're good at it. And I'm not even that good at it. But 
even if you're good at it, it can be extremely frustrating because you're fishing in between rocks and in mangrove swamps and stuff like that, trying to get and it's super frustrating. But once you hook that fish, it is some of the most fun hooking a fish of any other fishing I think ever. And so it, like it's so fresh. It, it can be like a lot of hard work and stuff. But once you hook it, it's and you get that reward. It's so rewarding. I think that's the way like snakes are. They can be difficult, but when you get that moment, you know it's very rewarding. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know. I just I think that a lot of people down it before they ever try it. So, uh, you know, I know very few people that only have one pet snake, <laughs> and I don't think that yeah. they're all crazy snake people. You know, I think it's just one of those things you buy one and you realize how amazing they are. Or by that one lizard, you know, like, dude, lizards are like the coolest thing in the world. Like, what have I been doing wrong? And it's like, man, if we can get more people to try this magical little drug, you know, maybe we can get more people that actually have an appreciation for for what they are and what they do. But, Absolutely. Yeah, like uh like my my uh, female Maruki scrub python, as soon as I open the door to the building I have keep her in. All of a sudden, she'll like poke her head out of her hide, and she'll come all the way over to the far side of the enclosure because that's closer to where the entrance is. And she'll just be poking around, all rubbing around all the time, expecting to get fed or something like that. It's always just, yeah. I don't know, it's really a serotonin releasing just to see a snake come up to you like that. I guess just see how alert yeah. they are. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. awesome. Like, like how well they they can respond to people. Same way the lizards. Like, I've had friends that just call their lizards' name and they come running over. You know, they actually want that human affection or whatever. And, and a lot of people say, like, "Well, no, they don't." It's like, okay, you can debate that. I, I don't care. But at the same time, I know that my tegu knows how to get out of his cage, and it's very quiet in the room. And on a Saturday, he he's like, he's still here. I heard him get up to go to the bathroom. I'm getting out of this cage. So he would, he'd get out and then I would hear him and I'm like, he's getting out. Look at him. What a little butthole. I should definitely latch at some <laughs> He gets out, <laughs> he walks over and I hear him climb up underneath the blanket. So I'm like, yep, he's on the bed now. I can feel it. And then, you know, all of a sudden you feel cold lizard touch your leg and he'll crawl up onto my chest and fall asleep right there on my chest. And it's like, yeah, this works, you know, I just try not to roll over. So I wake him up or whatever. Yeah, just freaking cuddle for two hours until he decides oh, I'm going to get down and see if I can't find something to eat. And I'm like, nah, it'd be best if you didn't do that. <laughs> you know, you, you're going to have to go back if you're going to do that. But, you know, and people say, well, it's just the warmth. And I said, well, that's fine. It's still a nice little interaction that we have together, you know, regardless if it's warmth or not. It's, it's still, I mean, nice Saturday morning. It's kind of chilly to have a cool little lizard hang out with you. Why not? He knows how to get out of the cage and onto the bed by himself. That's neat. Yeah, reptiles are definitely way more personable than people realize. Um, they, uh, I knew a dude too that had a tegu, and he would, um, he would every day when he'd come home from work, he'd sit down on the couch, call its name, it would come, sit on its lap, and they'd watch TV together. It's crazy. It's so cool. Yeah. I want to yeah, get my true. tegu to that point. He's, I, I more recently bought him, so, but I'm, I'm wanting to get him to that point. So, uh, they're yeah, my, so one of my favorite lizards by far. And so I think yet again, that kind of comes back to my Cobra conversation, the fact that they'll act one way inside the cage. They'll be very like food aggressive inside the cage or they'll be, you know, this is my area. Get out of my area. But once you put him down on the floor, he's like, oh, this is different. What's going on out here? You know, it's more inquisitive. It's like food aggression's gone. Now it's just like, let's check out behind this thing. You know, and if you got a lot of stuff that isn't going to get broken in the, in the habit of it moving around, just let it down. See what it favors. See, see what it does, how it reacts. 
So that's why I know that mine would come up into the bed with me because one too many days of just letting him do what he wants to do, you know, the bedroom door shut. It's like, oh, let's see what he's going to do, you know? Oh, check it out. <laughs> you figured out how to climb onto a bed. That's cool. <laughs> that's also a weird thing that a lot of people don't understand is the fact that reptiles seek comfort. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, of course they do. And it's like, well, yeah, but okay, ex example. If you have an alligator get loose while you're transporting it, it will find the couch. You know, it's like <laughs> for some reason, it's like it will pull the pillow off the bed and sleep on the pillow. It's like you don't understand. These guys will find the softest thing in the room. It's not necessarily the most hidden or the the darkest or the quietest. They'll find the softest. It's like, oh man, that's a really nice blanket you have. It'd be a shame if I slept on it. <laughs> it's like, oh great, I wash that yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, one place I worked at that did a lot of uh, nuisance alligators. Uh, but anyways, it's down in Southeast Texas. And when Hurricane Harvey was about to hit where they were out, really gets really easily flooded. So they moved the biggest gator they had, which I think they said was a world record for largest alligator captured alive. His name's Big Tex. Well, they put him in the back of a trailer and put pull him out to one of the owner's properties, which was on higher ground. Think about the trailer is back half is, you know, kind of a typical storage trailer. The front half is actually like a bed bedroom, something like that. So after the first night, the boss goes out to take a look in the trailer, see how he's doing. He notices he's not in there. He looks in the door that divides it from the bedroom, from the storage area where they had him. The door's busted down. He goes in, takes a peek, and there's this 14 and a half foot alligator sitting on his bed, just living his best life. I think it's <laughs> still awesome. find the photos. I think it's still find the photos online. I think I'll try and look it up and send to you after the, uh, the podcast is done. I'd like to see that. That'd be hilarious. 14 foot alligator, 14 and a half foot alligator on a bed. Say, like, oh man, that's those stains are not coming out. It's just, <laughs> it's, I gotta get a new bed. It's, you know, he's muddy. There's no chance he's a clean alligator with the hurricane coming in. He's He's got to be a real, oh man, that'd be a bad day. But here's what it is, I guess. I do that with my ball python sometimes when I cleaning out his cage. Um, if I, you know, I'll, I'll give him like time to like slither around and explore and stuff. But a lot of times I just put him on my bed. He'll just stay on the bed and like he'll like kind of go in in to like the sheets and stuff and just kind of like curl up and chill out and stuff. It's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, I think it's. And every once in a while you see his head pop up out of the out of the sheets and stuff and kind of look around and then go back in and stuff. It's fun. All right, well, um, I think we're actually going to end this time. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, unless you have anything else you want to say. Um, I think I'm good. I think we pretty much covered it. Uh, cool, yeah. yeah. I do yeah, appreciate you having me. It was a good time. Good conversation for sure. Absolutely, yeah. We talked about a lot of cool stuff. I'm glad you got to talk about it. Uh, the education stuff and the venom stuff that you're passionate about. So that's awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, appreciate you having me. I'm glad we could figure out the time. Sorry about my initial issues, but uh, I think we got everything sorted out. So no, yeah, I, mean, I, I was late from work too. So, you know, it was, it was all good. So everything worked out. Good deal. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, uh, yeah, hopefully all you guys right, get one. Right. Yep, you have a good one. You too.